Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Hey, hey, how Donald Trump could overthrow America. (laughs) It's a cheery way to start a day, isn't it? We'll get to that in a moment. Also, the Republican Party's extremist power grab in this new big lie bill that Republicans are trying to push through the House of Representatives exposed. I'll tell you all about that in a few minutes. Also, have you heard anything more racist than uh, Tommy Tuberville saying that you know, white nationalism, that's, if you're a white national, you're just an American. Yeah. You think white people are the superior race and should always run the nation? Well, that makes you an American. I get it that for a long time that actually did make you an American, but I think he's living in the wrong century. We're going to get into the government shutdown that might be coming this fall, what the Republicans are doing to uh, possibly set this thing up and what impact it would have on the United States. Also, is the uh, new attack from the Republicans on Jack Smith going to succeed? They theoretically have the power to defund his investigation. We'll talk about that. And the big proof and witness that Republicans had about Hunter Biden and Joe Biden taking that $5 million bribe. Not at all related to the Jared Kushner $2 billion bribe or the Donald Trump $100 million bribes. This is just a $5 million bribe. But anyhow, it turns out that that guy is a Chinese spy. I'll tell you all about that. Also, have you seen Trump's agenda if he's reelected? It's a doozy. So a lot to talk about today. My opening rant, though, is uh, about uh, how Trump's plan for the military could topple America. The House of Representatives comes back or is back in session today. The Senate came back yesterday. And between the two of them, there are 24 days between now and the time that government funding runs out on October 1st. That's the beginning of the new fiscal year. Then it's from the, for our government, it's then officially 2025. And there's only 24 days that Congress is going to be meeting to pass, you know, funding for government agencies, funding for all kinds of things. The most must-pass of all those things, though, is called the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act. And this is so critical because the framers of the Constitution, there were two big issues that were very contentious. If you go back, and it's fascinating reading, by the way. I, I recommend this. James Madison's journals are online all over the place. You can read them easily. Madison kept the notes of the Constitutional Convention, and every day he kept, you know, he literally wrote down everything everybody said. And there were a lot of debates about a lot of things, but the two biggest debates had to do with either A, slavery, which is not what I'm talking about here, or B, whether we should have a standing army during times of peace. This was a BFD. And most of the members of the Constitutional Convention, because they had seen standing armies during times of peace when they're, you know, they're sitting in country, they got nothing to do, they're twiddling their thumbs, they rise up and they overthrow the government, right? They've seen military coups. Europe was filled with, you know, the history of Europe is the history of military coups. So how do we prevent this was the big question. And they came up with two strategies. Uh, One 
was that there would be no standing army during time of peace, so the president could basically cut it down to virtually nothing, which, by the way, is what Thomas Jefferson did when he became president in 1801. There were over 300,000 men in the army, over 360,000 men in the U.S. Army left over from the Revolutionary War. By the time he left office in 1809, he had that down to 6,000 men in the army, which turned out to be a problem because in the War of 1812, we didn't have enough of an army to stop the Canadians and the, and the, and the British from uh, invading and, and making it all the way down to Washington, D.C. and burning the White House. Remember Dolly Madison rescuing the, the portrait of George Washington? So uh, that was the end of the, the conversation about the need to end a standing army. But back when the Constitution was written, it was a hot topic. And so they came up with a couple of strategies. One was the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment was this idea that every state will have a militia. The federal government will officially authorize states to arm their militias. And each state's militia, you know, we call them the National Guard today, each state's militia could be called out in the event that the nation was invaded. This is the way Switzerland, you know, kind of ran their, their military thing for centuries. It wasn't a novel idea. Countries had been doing this to avoid this very problem of military coups. And to really make it emphatic that they meant business beyond the Second Amendment, they actually wrote into Article 1, Section 8, that the Army of the United States shall not, well, here's the power. Here, here, this is the actual quote. Congress shall have the power to raise and support armies, but no appropriation of money to that use shall be for a term longer than two years. In other words, you can have an army, but every two years you have to ask yourself, do we want to continue to have an army? Now, as I said, this has not been a debate since 1812, but it was huge at the founding of the Republic. And therefore, in the Constitution, it says, if you guys don't pass this legislation, the army ceases to exist, or at least it ceases to be funded. And, you know, within probably a year or so, people, nobody getting a paycheck, you're not going to have a whole lot of people still hanging around. Not to mention the fact that you can't buy gas for vehicles and you can't buy food for the PX and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's why they call the NDAA must-pass legislation. So what does this have to do with Trump? Well, when Trump came into office, being a, a, a mobster, being a, a, a professional criminal, a professional lifelong criminal, who has been a, you know, one step ahead of the law his entire life. He believed that the best and most effective way to corrupt our federal government and get away with the crimes that he was intending to commit, he wanted to make a whole pile of money off the presidency. And he did commit a lot of crimes. I mean, you know, the Hatch Act violations, using the, the White House as a prop for campaign videos, um, selling products from the White House. Um, uh, you know, I mean, just, it just went, it was a parade of horribles. And that's just the, among the smallest, right? He figured the way to protect himself from being prosecuted for being a criminal in the White House was to corrupt the Department of Justice. And so he hired Bill Barr. Bill Barr was the guy who helped cover up Iran-Contra for George Herbert Walker Bush and Ronald Reagan. He was George H.W. Bush's att attorney general back in 1992 when they pardoned Casper Weinberger and four other people and ended the, uh, the, the investigation into Iran-Contra. Lawrence Walsh, the special prosecutor, front page of the New York Times, Christmas Eve, 1992, 
You know, this is a cover-up. It's a massive cover-up that this crime that Ronald Reagan committed in order to win the 1980 election. You know, cutting a deal with the Iranians to hold the hostages and then selling them weapons as, as a thank you. So Trump thought Bill Barr was going to protect him. Right. We'll put we'll take this corrupt guy and put him in charge of the Department of Justice. We'll get another corrupt guy, Chris Ray, or at least a toady, a guy who will go along with what I want. We'll put him in charge of the FBI. And it did. It worked. The FBI and the Department of Justice did not investigate Trump during the four years he was president, even though he kept committing crimes. And for two full years after he left office, they didn't investigate him because of all the dead enders left over. And Chris Ray is still running the FBI. But now Trump knows that that didn't, that wasn't enough. He still lost the 2020 election and had to leave office. So he's asking himself, what do I do this time in order to make sure? Well, it turns out that the one thing that stopped Trump on January 6th from declaring a national state of emergency, he actually had an executive order doing this ordering the military to seize voting machines. And the one thing that stopped him was General Mark Milley, was the military, the Pentagon. The Pentagon said, we will not go along with this. You can call up the military and tell us to go get these voting machines, but it's a violation of the Posse Comitatus Act, and we are not going to do it. So Trump has pretty much said out loud, I mean, just six months ago, he called again for firing Mark Milley. He has pretty much said out loud that if he becomes president, the first thing he's going to do is he's going to fire all the heads of, of the military. He'll fire the head of the Marine Corps. He'll fire the head of the Army. He'll fire the head of the Navy. He'll, head, he'll fire the Joint Chiefs of Staff, all of them, and replace them all with sycophants, with, with, with toadies, with, with Steve Bannon and Cash Patel-type people. And I think that, you know, he'll do it. I really do. And I, and I don't think that this is something unique to Trump. I think that any of these MAGA Republicans would probably do the same thing because they're all committed to ending democracy in America and replacing it with strongman fascism. So what do we do? Well, number one, Congress needs to strengthen the Posse Comitatus Act. Number two, it needs to deal with the emergency powers of the president. Number three, one of the ways that Trump so badly corrupted things, and he did this with his secretary of defense, and he did this, uh, you know, Chris, uh, 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 what was Chris's last name? Uh, -bum -bum. Chris Miller and his assistant, Cash Patel. Uh, he did this with, you know, a whole bunch of, of, of figures was to make them acting, right? Alexander Hamilton pointed out in Federalist uh, something or other, I forget the number, that um, the whole point of Senate confirmation was to keep out people of low character, basically, to prevent a president from putting lousy people into office. He says it would, Senate confirmation provides, quote, this is Federalist 76, an excellent check upon the spirit of favoritism in the president and would tend greatly to prevent the, the appointment of unfit characters. So the Senate needs to change the 1998 Vacancies Act to say that you can no longer do acting people in cabinet positions and, and positions that require Senate confirmation. You've got to have Senate confirmation. These things would Trump-proof the government. 
And frankly, I realize the Republicans control the House of Representatives, but there have to be at least five or six Republicans or seven or eight or nine Republicans in the House of Representatives who would go along with the Democrats on these things. These, I mean, we got to pull this fascist MAGA weed out. But in the meantime, we've got to harden our country's defense against it. What say you? We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Time for a roundup for Republicans, indeed. Nicholas in San Cristobal, Mexico. Hey, Nicholas, what's on your mind today? Goodness, thanks for taking my call in so quickly. A couple of things, but uh, firstly, I'm glad you took my advice and listened to El Dorado and thought that it was as important as I had. So important. Yeah. It's, it's the exact Nazi playbook, step by step by step. Yep. To how the GOPs work in the LGBT. Yep. As you, First go after the gays. Rand was about, you know, it, it all being distraction. It's exactly what it is. Yep. I'm with it's you. incredible. I'm yeah, with you. But my primary wish is to talk to you about the article that was in the New York Times about the, what the, uh, it was written by no less than Linda Greenhouse, the New York Times 30-year uh, reporter on the Supreme Court. A brilliant article. I'm sure you read it. And if not, it's just, you already know all this stuff we do, but she lays it out so carefully exactly what the Roberts Court accomplished over 18 years. Right. I even read the Rehnquist Court, yeah, that even the Rehnquist Court couldn't accomplish. And, and for your listeners, that was the overturn of Roe versus Wade, reinterpreting the Second Amendment, right, to make uh, private gun ownership a constitutional right, to eliminate race-based affirmative action, done, elevate the place of religion in general over in the legal landscape through the country, and curb regulatory power of federal agencies like the EPA. Yeah, he these are all huge done. things. Yeah, these are all huge, huge things. things. And, and there's worse to come, by the way. All of us. Huh? And there's worse to come. I, go, don't say that. I know you're right, but it just hurts my heart so bad. Yeah. yeah. You know, and uh, so all these things need to be considered carefully. Just intimate, because there's more ahead. There is more. They are out. To, somebody asked me recently, what's the actual end game of the Supreme Court? And I said, I sort of am getting the feeling the end game is to create a general sense of unease throughout the country. Oh, the, their end game is very simple, Nicholas. These guys are all dancing, all, all of these conservatives on the court are dancing to the tune of American oligarchs. And their end game yes, is to create an, is to is to firmly establish oligarchy, so firmly establish oligarchy in the United States yeah. that it cannot be uprooted. Yeah, I guess I guess what I'm really afraid of is the how they're going about it, and it's to create that sense of unease. I mean, I do think they are that evil. I think they don't care that they're, you know, getting the entire country so concerned about their own basic rights. Yeah. And that to further what you just said, the. Uh, uh, installation of a, a firm, firmly established oligarchy. I, I, I don't, I don't We're almost there. We're say. halfway there as a result of Citizens United. I mean, oh, you know, the, the, look at look at uh, J.D. Vance, for example. I mean, you know, if he didn't have oh, right wing billionaires supporting him, he never would have been the senator from Ohio. Not even remotely possible. The man is yeah. a complete twit. Yeah. Worse than you know, I, I did like uh, Hillbilly Elegy. I thought it was well written. And his personal story is admirable. But for God's sakes, that's the end of it right there. Yep. Yeah, just because somebody yeah. can write a good book doesn't mean that they'd make a good senator or even are a decent person. Um, Do we but, even know but, he wrote it? He may have had a ghostwriter for all we know. <laughs> yeah, actually, he's wealthy <laughs> enough. I mean, he could have easily I done that. Nothing bad these people. Yeah. Yeah. Just craziness, huh? 
Yeah, it, it really anyway, is. Anyway, I'm not sure that's important, but it's sure on my mind. Yeah, I did read Linda Greenhouse's piece and uh, nodded my head and said, well, there's nothing new here, but <laughs> it's like it's a kind yeah. of a grim summary. Uh, it's a yeah. grim summary, right? Yeah, I'm with you. Nicholas, yeah. nice to hear from you. Thanks for the call, and thanks for that tip on El Dorado again. Louise and I uh, uh, were horrified by it, but it was uh, you know an hour and a half well spent. Thank you. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. So an extremist power grab, uh, Republicans are proposing new legislation in the House of Representatives that was described by Demos, you know, the uh, pro-democracy think tank. They tweeted, it's called the ACE Act. It's called the American Confidence in Elections Act. But most people are calling it the big lie bill because <laughs> it's basically all based on Donald Trump's big lie. And Demos tweeted that the ACE Act is an extremist power grab that would overturn laws that strengthen democracy in America and open the floodgates to secret money. Uh, the only people cheering this bill are billionaires and corporations. Another think tank, the Declaration for American Democracy, uh, wrote this bill would amplify the influence of corporations and billionaires by raising contribution limits and reducing reporting and re transparency requirements, opening the floodgates to even more secret money in our elections. Uh, this, it would also disenfranchise millions of voters by encouraging restrictive anti-voter policies that have a disproportionate effect on black, indigenous, young, and new American voters. Um, it is, by the way, is a standalone piece of legislation uh, spearheaded by the Committee on House Administration Chair uh, Brian Sells, a Republican from Wisconsin. But it includes nearly 50 standalone bills from the Republican uh, members of the House. Uh, most of which are kind of echoes of what's going on in Texas, Florida, and Georgia. It's amazing. Meanwhile, Senator, uh, Senator Tommy Tuberville has, uh, you know, was on CNN, uh, interviewed by Caitlin Collins, and he says, uh, yeah, white, white nationalism, that's not, there's nothing racist about that. To say that America is a white nation, it should always be a white nation, it should be run by white people because white people are the, the, the master race. There's nothing racist about that, says Tommy Tuberville. As he's blocking, he's, the Marine Corps, does, will, in two weeks, will no longer have a commandant. Because Tommy Tuberville is blocking all military promotions. Why? Because if you're a woman in the military and you get raped or you get, you get pregnant and, you know, unexpectedly and don't want to, to carry it to term, and you're in a state where abortion is illegal, the military will pay to fly you to a state where you can get an abortion. And Tommy Tuberville says that shouldn't be. Women who are 
in the military and stuck in Georgia or stuck in a military base in Texas. They should just, you know, suck it up and have the damn baby. And he's going to he's going to kneecap the military if it, you know, uh, this uh, this guy is so unpatriotic. He is so un-American and so disgustingly racist. His only credential to be a United States senator is that he, he was a football coach at a college. I mean, that was it. Give me a break. Uh, Rebecca in Rockport, Massachusetts. Hey, Rebecca, thanks for watching Free Speech. What's Hi. on your mind? Hi. Uh, you know, your rant today kind of brought in greater relief, at least for me, what Tommy Tuberville is really doing. You know, you mentioned about decapitating the military by right. Trump if he gets back into office. Right. But you know what's going on? Just that, with what Tommy Tuberville's doing. Yep. And if it keeps up, it's going to reach really deep into the ranks because we have other uh, department heads and service heads coming up for replacement. Right, which requires and, Senate confirmation. There's there's uh, yeah. almost 300 of them so far, including yeah. now the head and of the and Marine and Corps. Yeah, and if this keeps going, there's going to be really deep reaches into the military that the next Republican president, God forbid, should happen, are going to be able to fill even positions that might not otherwise be reached because they're already filled by other people. Yeah. I mean, this has really, to me, potential devastating implications because I think what a lot of these Republican, other, even Republican candidates, let alone Republican legislators, have realized is how to manipulate all of this stuff because Trump showed them and showed them that he can get away with it. Yeah, yeah. In fact, somebody uh, replied I, I believe it was in the uh, reply section to my, you know, over on HartmanReport.com to my, my article today. Uh, might have been someplace else, might have been you know, on Twitter or something, but I, th I think it was there. Making the exact same point that you're making, Rebecca, which hadn't occurred to me when I wrote the piece that Tuberville might, yeah, I mean, but Tuberville was part of that whole sedition effort. I mean, he was in tight with Trump on January 6th on the whole thing, you know, apparently several meetings in Trump, uh, in Trump uh, Hotel in the in the week before and and uh so yeah it, it makes sense that tuberville is setting up the uh the bakes basically take over the military by donald trump makes perfect sense rebecca thank you thanks for sharing that michael in los angeles listening on kpfk hey, michael what's what's up hey tom uh first time caller i hope i don't get tongue-tied with stage fright here or something but i'm calling to, to fyi on what I read an article in Scientific American, December 2022 issue, and it's a term called moral injury. And it's a, a new understanding about how we can deal with all this, just like your earlier caller talking about what the Supreme Court has managed to get through, and then, you know, Trump and his efforts to right. so try and take over. So moral and, injury here. Yeah, moral injury. That's it. And I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to have legs. It's going to be there with PTSD, which is more like being triggered, I would say, Perhaps it's like the id idea. So who's proposing this uh, phrase? It was coined by a VA psychiatrist huh. who, who recognized that PTSD just wasn't covering 
what a lot of people were dealing with. Right. And moral injury is, you can't... It's awful uh, stuff. Michael, I'm sorry I'm out of time, but thanks for flagging that for me. I'll, I'll have to do some deep dive on that. Thank you. Les in Winnemucca, Nevada. Hey, Les, what's on your mind today? Hey, good morning, Tom Hartman. Good to talk to you. Thank you. I don't understand how this Nazi, Doberville Nazi guy down in Alabama, one senator can hold all this up. I am mad at all them guys up in leadership for not just, just get off the dime and get after it. These guys are, these Republicans are playing hardball. Yeah. And we're still playing slow bit softball. Yeah, I, I get it, Les. It would take a, I believe it would take a change to the Senate rules, and that would require you well, know, 50 votes. It well, weather. mention Gotti's pipeline, so yeah. maybe he would be more. But so one more thing, and then yeah. I'll get out of here. All these news stories, you know, they're, they're like shiny baubles for the news media. And they're good stories that need to be told. But they keep bouncing from one to the other, one to the other. And I think a lot of this chaos is being caused simply to cause agitation between the people mm. so that they can slowly, quietly buy our government. Yeah, I think there's a large element of truth to that, Les. You know, chaos is their friend when they no governing. Trump is orange finger, right? Yeah, they have no governing agenda other than other than uh, you know making the rich rich, comforting the comfortable, and uh, and diminishing comfort for the rest of us. There's a there's an old uh, cliche about that, but I'm I'm not recalling the details of it. Les, thank you for the call. Ken in Lafayette, Colorado. Hey, Ken, thanks for watching Free Speech. What's up? Uh, good morning, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. My pleasure. My question involves Tommy Tuberville and his laces, you know, racist rant and blocking the appointments in the military. Mm -hmm. So my question, can't, for example, Lloyd Austin, Secretary of Defense, can he just say, to heck with you, Tommy, I'm appointing so-and-so to this position, or President Biden, can't, isn't there... Uh, you know, somebody that can just override this nonsense? No, no, sadly. Um, the, the Constitution uh, explicitly says that, uh, and this is in um, Federalist, what, 56, I think? Um, uh, Hamilton talks about it and describes why. In fact, I quoted it earlier. I'll, I'll give you the, uh, the exact quote. And like I said, this is from the Constitution where basically everything has to run through the Senate. This is what Alexander, it was 76, Federalist 76. Alexander Hamilton says, to what purpose then require the cooperation of the Senate? I answer that the necessity of their concurrence would have a powerful, though in general, a silent operation. It would be an excellent check upon a spirit of favoritism in the president and would tend greatly to prevent the appointment of unfit characters. So the Constitution explicitly says that the Senate shall have the power to or, there, or shall be required to vet senior officials of an administration. And it specifically includes cabinet officials, the Constitution. But then basically what the Constitution says is Congress has to make a law to establish which people need Senate confirmation and which ones don't. And so over the years, this law has been updated, you know, probably dozens, maybe even hundreds of times. But basically the law of the United States right now is that every commissioned officer who gets a consequential raise above a certain level, and I don't know where it starts. But these raises, essentially, there's financial raises as well as rank raises, 
these increases in rank have to be approved by the Senate. Either wow. now Tuberville is able to hold these up, not because of those laws. The law doesn't require that the Senate be unanimous. It only requires a 50 percent majority plus one. It's the Senate rules that allow a single senator to stop this. And that's where Chuck Schumer could intervene if he wanted. He could call for a vote on the Senate rules to eliminate or to end the power of one senator to block things like this confirmation. But what that would do is it would gut an awful lot of power from every single senator going forward into the future on all kinds of issues. I mean, right now, this is, uh, you know, Chuck Schumer's looking at this, this power of, to obstruct things as something that, you know, if Trump ever becomes president, he may have to use to stop Trump from doing terrible things. So he's not going to give that no. up. And so Tuberville is using this to try to block the Pentagon's abortion policy. And the question is, you know, is he going to reach a point where he gives, where he says, okay, enough? Because he's, he's starting to really piss off the Republicans, too. You know, it's going to be interesting to watch. Ken, I got to run. Thanks for the call. Chris in Visalia, California. Hey, Chris, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me and my question. What's on my mind is actually a prediction I made over 20 years ago, my freshman year in high school. That was the time uh, then Mayor Gavin Newsom was handing out marriage licenses. Mm -hmm. And I remember that being very controversial. Yes. Ironically, it really hurt. John Kerry's election with Bush taking up family values and everything. Yep. But it was the right thing to do, and I'm glad he did that. It was very forward-thinking. But fast-forwarding a little bit later, being in Democratic politics and being a native Californian, I noticed even within the party, he's always had a lot of controversy. He tried to run for Gavin Newsom governor in 2010, about. but... When he found out that Jerry Brown was running again, he decided to run for lieutenant governor. And I thought it was kind of sad. He uh, was interviewed and he didn't even know what lieutenant governor did, what the position did. You could tell that this was just a, uh, a stepping stone. So it sounds like you're not a big fan of um, Gavin Newsom. Is that is that what you're calling to tell us? In so many words, yes yeah. and no. I'm I a think there's a very good chance he's going to be the Democratic Party's nominee in 2028. Yeah, I I can see that. But he also faced a huge recall in California. And if we didn't have a person that was was, just like Trump. That was Republican driven. I mean, that was that was there there was no legitimate basis for that. They were trying to pull a Gray Davis. They were trying to do to him what they did to Gray Davis. But, you know, he hadn't been sabotaged by by PG&E the way that uh, or by Enron, basically, the the way that Gray Davis was. I mean, they took down Gray Davis. They didn't succeed oh, in definitely. Gavin Newsom, which I think actually strengthens well, Gavin Newsom. So, Chris, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Roya, thanks for the call. Roya in Los Angeles. Hey, Roya, thanks for listening to KPFK. What's up? Good morning, Tom. I just, like, so bummed out. Like, this morning I was watching whatever, like, uh, they were talking about how, like, now the butler, Trump's, like, butler, want, like, his lawyers want extra time, and they're just going to keep pushing this out, pushing this out, because they don't have enough manpower to go through all the details and all the whatever catalogs that they need to, like, review. I'm getting really nervous about this, and, and I'm so sick and tired of people like, oh, Trump's going to be 2024. I just, I tell everyone yeah. to shut their mouth, and I'm like, no. Well, this is Trump's strategy happen. now, Roya, is he, he thinks that if he becomes president, and he's right, by the way, if he becomes president, he can pardon himself and all the charges will go away, and all the state charges against him will have to go into into suspension. Uh, they'll they'll be crystallized for four years. But the thing is, it's like, how is, the, how is this even happening? If you and I 
I just and, and you know your last caller about uh, pitching about Gavin. Gavin's awesome. So you know what? Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, uh, yeah I'm a fan of Gavin Newsom's. I, you know, I realize that he's made some compromises, but uh, I think he's I think he's going to do good. Roya, thanks for the call. Um, yeah, Trump. Trump does seem bulletproof. Uh, stay tuned. I don't think he's quite as bulletproof as he thinks. Uh, bulletproof is the wrong phrase, but you know what? A Teflon, let's say. We'll be right back. So, is there a government shutdown coming? <laughs> Odds are growing. There are, uh, the, the House of Representatives just came back from their 17-day 4th of July celebration, time off, whatever. How do you get a job like that, right? 17 days off for the 4th of July, 30 days off for August, uh, you know, three weeks off for Christmas. I think it's three or four weeks off for Easter. It's like, wow. Anyhow. I realize they're supposed to go back to their districts and hold town halls, and I realize that most of the Democrats actually do that, but there hasn't been a Republican town hall that I've heard of in the last five years or so. I mean, they're just ignoring their voters. They just don't, you know, ah, screw it. Anyhow, uh, they have 12 days, 12 legislative days before the August recess, and then when they get back from the August recess, there are another 12 days in September, legislative days. So there's a total of 24 legislative days between now and the end of September. And that's when government funding runs out. Now, Biden apparently thought he had all this worked out with Kevin McCarthy in the debt ceiling deal. But uh, Kevin's word is about as good as the toilet paper it's written on. And so uh, now we're finding that, uh, no, not so much. Uh, you know, we're, we're not going to respect the numbers. We're not going to respect the deal. And, uh, you know, we may not even pass the NDAA. The NDAA, the, you know, which I, was my opening rant, the National Defense Authorization Act, which if it's not passed every two years, now there was one passed last year. So if it's not passed this year, it doesn't mean that the military goes away, but they will run out of funding. And next year, they will go away. Uh, this is exactly, of course, what Republicans want. They want chaos. They want a crisis. They, they want Joe Biden to have to deal with, with the mess that they make because they think it will distract him. It will uh, give them things that they can complain about. And most spectacularly, if they can shut down the government and if they can cause the uh, bond rating of this government to be hurt, then it will, it can provoke a recession and a recession is exactly what the Republicans want. I mean, they're just desperate for one. They, they've got Jay Powell, lifelong Republican bankster, you know, at the, at the helm of the fed, uh, working to give them one and you know, doing his very, very best actually. So we'll see. I mean, you know, we'll see, but there's the NDAA. Then there's Tommy Tuberville who uh, is holding up the Pentagon. Uh, you know, we, I mentioned that. There are, but the, with the NDAA, there are over 1,400 amendments that the House has to go through in the 24 days, 24 legislative days, including today, 23 going forward, um, between now and the end of, you know, or between now and the moment the curtain falls and the money runs out on October 1st. About a half a dozen of those amendments deal with abortion, including one that would block the federal government from considering 
uh, state abortion policies when deciding where to build military bases, right, or any other federal building for that matter. So this is happening over the backdrop of this just insane chaos in the Freedom Caucus. By the way, a great piece about this by Joan McCarter over on Daily Kos today, kind of my principal source for this. And she talks about how the Freedom Caucus is splintering apart. Now, there was a fascinating piece by Amanda Marcotte this morning in, um, I believe she writes for Slate. Is it Slate or Salon? She writes for one or the other. And maybe it was Salon. Uh, but I, I, I read it this morning in any case when I was you know, looking for stories, you know, what do we want to talk about in the program today? And uh, she was pointing out that when Marjorie Taylor Greene got kicked out of the, out of the so-called Freedom Caucus, I, I call it the Cokehead Caucus. It's, it's the caucus that takes you know, large amounts of money from right-wing billionaires, uh, you know, including uh, Charles Koch and his buddies. And they, they, uh, they, held, they held this vote apparently two weeks ago in secret and kicked out Marjorie Taylor Greene. And there was a lot of speculation about why. You know, is it that she got too close to Kevin McCarthy? Well, probably not, because Jim Jordan, who is, you know, one of the shakers and movers in the Freedom Caucus, is, calls himself Kevin McCarthy's best friend. He and, he and Kevin are buds. So if it's not that she got too close to Kevin McCarthy... Then the other excuse is that, you know, she got in this fight with Lauren Boebert on the House, on the floor of the House of Representatives and called her the B word, you know, rhymes with itch. And that that was a horror so terrible that she had to be kicked out of the caucus. Well, that doesn't make any sense either. I mean, that's tame language. I could say that word on the air if, you know, it's not, it's not even an illegal word. And, you know, and these people swear regularly. I mean, you know, come on, this is, this is nonsense. So why was she really kicked out? Well, Amanda Marcotte was uh, arguing that the reason she got kicked out of the caucus was because she was becoming a high profile female and that the Cokehead caucus, the Freedom Caucus is actually entirely male run. And the men, and I mean, you know, given this is the Republican party, I mean, patriarchy is their thing that the men in the Freedom Caucus didn't like an uppity woman. They didn't want Marjorie Taylor Greene becoming a star um, in, in their caucus, you know, like, like the way Alexander Ocasio-Cortez has become a star in the, in the Progressive Caucus. And maybe they were concerned that she was going to try and take on the leadership or, you know, try to run for leadership. I just find it fascinating. I don't know the answer. And I don't think any of us do, but what we do know and what we can see is that the Republican majority in the House is only nine votes, as I recall, maybe it's seven, one or the other, fewer than 10, and that they can't pass legislation if, you know, a half a dozen, if a handful of, of members of the House of the Freedom Caucus decide to say no. And the Freedom Caucus is in terrible disarray right now. So where does this lead? Well, you know, nobody's really sure, but we've got 12 days before the August recess and then 12 days through the month of September, legislative days, to do all this work to deal with a whole series of appropriations, including the NDAA, which, you know, frankly, from my point of view, is the one they could ignore. But although... You know, now Marjorie Taylor Greene has a major amendment to the NDAA, cutting off all military help to Ukraine. She's apparently joined the Putin caucus. 
which, you know, there's a lot of members of the Freedom Caucus who are also members of the Putin Caucus, but uh, it's an unofficial caucus, shall we say. Okay, so that's story number one. Story number two, there's a new Republican attack on Jack Smith. They think they've uh, they figured it out. Now, this ain't going to happen because it would have to get past the democratically controlled Senate and it would be subject to veto by Joe Biden. But they're probably going to do it anyway. Politico is reporting this, that these uh, House Republican cranks and that's I, I you know, Hunter calls them that over on Daily Coast. I don't I can't think of a better word for them. Want to impeach Merrick Garland and Chris Ray. And they're hoping to use this procedure on Jack Smith. Now, whether they can impeach Jack Smith or not, I don't know. But now the Freedom Caucus, the Cokehead Caucus, is talking about just zeroing out the salaries of all these people. You know, hey, if you don't like Jack Smith, just cut his, cut his funding. Congress controls the purse strings, not the president, not the Department of Justice. And uh, so... I mean, it's just a, Hunter calls it a, a gleefully corrupt act, which I think is just a, a perfect phrase to describe this. Uh, you know, and, and he points out, he says, the caucus and its allies are not so much a political caucus as an organized crime ring. Not a well-organized crime ring, mind you, but organized enough. And I think that's, you know, a really good analysis. You know, he, he, they're probably going to continue moving forward with a Garland impeachment investigation because it's a spectacle, right? And it gets revenge against, uh, I mean, they're, they're, very, they're very upset that House Democrats impeached Donald Trump twice. How dare they? We are going to get our revenge. Meanwhile, James Comer, you know, the head of the uh, House Oversight Committee, he has been promising that he is going to present this witness who has proof and tapes and evidence and videotape and audio tape and documents proving that Joe Biden and his son Hunter took a $5 million bribe from Ukraine or somebody. Well, that story's getting real interesting. I'll tell you about that after the break. Well, the, the big Republican witness, they have been, James Comer has been so proud of this. I mean, you know, just a couple days ago, this was uh, what he had to say about Democrats uh, saying that there is no witness that Joe Biden took a $5 million bribe. He says, he's very credible. And the people on MSNBC who have made fun of me when I said we had an informant that was missing, they should feel like fools right now. This is their worst nightmare. Why is that? Well, because we've identified and, and, and although not located, the witness who James Comer wants to bring before Congress to tell the world that he saw or he has video or audio or something of Joe Biden taking a bribe. And who is this guy? Well, he's the leader of a U.S. think tank. His name is Gal Luft, G-A-L-L-U-F-T. He's a dual citizen of the United States and Israel. And he has been charged by federal prosecutors with being a spy for China an unregistered agent of China, as well as seeking to broker the sale of weapons illegally. He's an arms, he's an illegal arms trader. And Iranian oil, he's selling Iranian oil illegally on the black market. This is the guy that James Comer says Democrats and people on MSNBC have to be so embarrassed that they've been criticizing him about. And now that he's got a federal indictment against him, 
I mean, this is, uh, this is the Southern District of New York just made this announcement. Quote, U.S. attorney announces charges against co-director of Think Tank for acting as an unregistered foreign agent, trafficking in arms, violating U.S. sanctions against Iran, and making false statements to federal agents. I missed that one. He also lied to the FBI about it. And the reason James Comer can't bring him before the House of Representatives to, to say, oh, well, yes, I, I know about personal information or firsthand information or a close source or something, but I know that uh, Joe Biden took that $5 million. He can't do that because he's on the run from the FBI. They just issued an arrest warrant for him. And nobody knows where this uh, dual U.S.-Israeli citizen is, but uh, he's hiding out somewhere. All righty. Uh, I was just, yeah, just going to pick up Dave in Buffalo right there, <laughs> but he just dropped off. So uh, let's go to Joseph in uh, Bobie, Minnesota. Hey, Joseph, what's on your mind today? Hey, I'm not going to talk about COVID today. Okay. <laughs> are, you, are you familiar with the, uh, the TV show, uh, The Secret of Skinwalker Ranch? I am not. It's on, it's on the History Channel. And uh, back in the 90s when I did, uh, was working with satellite data and research and climate change, I worked with a grad student named Travis Trailer. He's now a doctor, Travis Trailer, and he's a lead investigator on the show. And uh, he worked for the Department of Defense and NASA on their UFO projects. Mm-hmm. And um, anyways, this, this is a real science investigation. It is really fascinating to watch. And they are seeing um, not only the cattle mutilations and all these other type of things like that, uh, you know, skinwalkers. I'm not sure if you, they've been verified by the natives in the area. And anyways, they're... they're they're seeing this signal that's at uh, 1.6 to 1.7 gigahertz, and that's reserved for space communication. And this thing is coming underground. So they tried to penetrate this thing with a drill, and they can't, they can't even hardly, you know, dent the thing. And they pulled up some scraps from this thing underground, and it's like a composite that they used to make the space shuttle's uh, tiles <laughs> that everybody's familiar with. So this is uh, just a fascinating show. So they and think I it's extraterrestrial? Yes, they do. They they keep huh. seeing that they're, they're documented on the on the you know on the footage. Um, all these different kind of lights. Yeah, I've, I've seen some of those History Channel shows about you know they're they're, they're they're kind of this generation's version of Eric Von Donegan, you know, the Chariots of the Gods. Um, right, but right. you know they're 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 pretty credulous. I mean they they're 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 willing to believe stuff that it's pretty sometimes pretty thinly sourced. Yeah, and they're in their fourth season, so I I urge everybody to watch <laughs> yeah. it. Okay, and I have one more uh, one more quick point. Okay, you got ten uh, seconds. All right, Elon Musk space link satellites are emitting a radio frequency that is interfering with the uh, astronomers. I I just read that story this morning. I I just read it like during the last break. You're absolutely right. And uh, (laughs) they're going to have to, the Starlink satellites, they're going to have to figure out what's going on with this because this is going to be a real mess for radio astronomers. Uh, They should not be doing that. (laughs) You know, apparently they don't have uh, uh, good good control of of, uh, resonant frequencies. Uh, Joseph, thanks for the call. We'll be back picking up your calls.
the Tom Harbin University Book Club. Today we're reading from In Praise of Wasting Time by Alan Lightman. This is from Chapter 1, A Village in Cambodia. Not long ago, I found myself in a small village in a remote area of Cambodia. Many rural areas in the world have modern plumbing, electric ovens, satellite TVs, and other such technological conveniences, but not this one. The inhabitants of Tramung Trum live in one-room huts without electricity or running water. Dangling light bulbs in the huts are powered by car batteries. Food is cooked over open fires. The villagers support themselves by growing rice, watermelons, and cucumbers. Their religion is a version of moderate Islam called Imam San Cham, combined with animism. When someone needs healing, the villagers perform a ceremony in which they summon the spirits of ancestors, monkeys, and horses. The ghosts inhabit the bodies of the villagers who dance wildly through the night. Other than these moments, the villagers go about their lives in quiet calm. They rise with the sun. After breakfast, they herd their cows out for grazing, then walk to the rice fields and tend to their crops. They return to their huts as the light starts to dim and gather firewood for cooking the evening meal. Each morning, the women ride their bicycles on a rutted red dirt road to a market 10 miles away to trade for goods and food they cannot grow themselves. Through a translator, I asked one of the women how long the daily trip took. She gave me a puzzled look and said, I never thought about that. I was startled at her disinterest in time and envious. We in the developed world have created a frenzied lifestyle in which not a minute is to be wasted. The precious 24 hours of each day are carved up, dissected, and reduced to 10-minute units of efficiency. We become agitated and angry in the waiting room of a doctor's office if we've been sitting for 10 minutes or more. We grow impatient if our laser printers don't spit out at least five pages per minute. And we must be connected to the grid at all times. We take our smartphones and laptops with us on vacation. We go through our email at restaurants or our online bank accounts while walking in the park. The teenagers I know and some of their parents check their smartphones at least every five minutes in their free waking hours. At night, many sleep with their phones on their chests or next to their beds. When the school day ends, our children are loaded with piano lessons and dance classes and soccer games and extra language classes. Our university curricula are so crammed that our young people don't have time to digest and reflect on the material they're supposed to be learning. I plead guilty myself. If I take the time to examine my own 24 hours per day, here's what I find. From the instant I open my eyes in the morning until I turn out the lights at night, I'm working on some project. First thing in the morning, I check my email. For any unsuspecting opening of time that appears during the day, I rush to patch it as if it's a tear in my trousers. I find a project. Indeed, I feel compelled to find a project to fill up the hole. If I have an extra hour, I can work on my laptop on an article or class lesson. If I have a few minutes, I can answer a letter or read an online news story. With only seconds, I can check phone messages. Unconsciously, without thinking about it, I've subdivided my day into smaller and smaller units of efficient time use until there are no holes left, no breathing spaces left. I rarely goof off. I rarely follow a path that I think might lead to a dead end. I rarely waste time. And certainly, I would never, ever spend a couple of hours of each day going to the market without knowing exactly how long the trip took and figuring out how to listen to an audiobook on the way. It's not only me. All around me, I feel a sense of urgency, a very vague fear of not being plugged in, a fear of not keeping up. I feel like Joseph K. in Kafka's The Trial, who lives in a world of ubiquitous suspicion and powerful but invisible authority. Yet there's no authority here, only a pervasive mentality. I can remember a time when I did not live in this way. I can remember those days of my childhood when I would slowly walk home from school by myself and take long detours through the woods. 
With the silence broken only by the sound of my own footsteps, I would follow turtles as they lumbered down a dirt path. Where were they going and why? I don't know. I would build play forts out of fallen trees. I would sit on the banks of Cornfield Pond and waste hours watching tadpoles in the shallows or the sway of water grasses in the wind. My mind meandered. I thought about what I wanted for dinner that night, whether God was a man or a woman, whether tadpoles knew they were destined to become frogs, or what it would feel like to be dead, what I wanted to be when I became a man, that fresh bruise on my knee. When the light began fading, I wandered home. I asked myself, what happened to those careless, wasteful hours at the pond? How has the world changed? Of course, part of the answer is that I simply grew up. Adulthood undeniably brings responsibilities and career pressures and a certain awareness of the weight of life. Yet that is only part of what has happened. Indeed, an enormous transformation has occurred in the world from the 1950s and 60s of my youth to today. A transformation so vast that it has altered all that we say and do and think, yet often in ways so subtle and ubiquitous we're hardly aware of them. Among other things, the world today is faster, more scheduled, more fragmented, less patient, louder, more wired, more public. For want of a better phrase, I will call this world the wired world. By this term, I do not mean only digital communication, the internet and social media. I also mean the frenzied pace and noise of the world. There are many different aspects of today's time-driven wired existence, but they are connected. All can be traced to recent technological advances and economic prosperity in a complex web of cause and effect. Throughout history, the pace of life has always been fueled by the speed of communication in praise of wasting time. A couple of quick things here. I mentioned Dolly Madison saved George Washington's portrait in the War of 1812. Turned out Dolly Madison ordered Paul Jennings, a 15-year-old enslaved African-American, to save the painting. He smashed up the frame and cut out the painting so that he could extract it and handed it off to two friends of the Madison family who uh, spirited it away. Uh, in 2009, his descendants were invited to the White House by the Obama family to view the painting that their ancestor, Paul Jennings, helped save. He actually published a book in 1865 about his experiences being enslaved by James Madison. Fascinating story. It's called My Experiences with James Madison, so it must be. And Madison was a slaveholder. Incredible times, huh? All righty. You think you know about, you know, what Donald Trump will do if he becomes president? I started the program today talking about how he's not going to start with the Justice Department this time like he did last time. You know, last time he corrupted the Justice Department because he saw a legal threat to himself. But then when he wanted to hold on to the White House and lost the election, I mean, he realized that really the threat was the military. He needed, you know, because the military would not go along with his coup. So the next time he will decapitate the military uh, as the first thing he does. I, you know, guarantee you. But there's a bunch of other stuff that Donald Trump has promised in various venues and at various times. He's punished, he's promised that he's going to punish doctors who provide uh, gender affirming care to trans people. He's uh, promised that he's going to purge America's radical left college accreditation boards. These are the boards that uh, vet college curriculum and professors and all that kind of stuff. He's going to purge them. So uh, he says we'll replace them with new accreditors who will impose real standards once and for all. Whenever a fascist says once and for all, you, you need to get a little nervous. 
He also said that he's going to uh, purge from America's schools, quote, radical zealots and Marxists, as well as pink-haired communists. Right, so we're gonna purge the schools. We're gonna have a right-wing board that oversees who can teach and who can't and what books can and cannot be used. He's gonna cut funding for any school that pushes a, quote, woke agenda, which would include any teaching of American history that might reflect favorably on black people or poorly on white people. He's going to facilitate the arming of teachers. In fact, at an NRA convention, he said he will be, I will be the most pro-gun president in history, he said. And yeah, isn't that a great idea? Put a gun on the hip of every teacher in America. Just, you know, the kids would never, you know, just snatch that thing and do something stupid with it. Guns just never go off by accident. Teachers are competent marksmen, didn't you know? He uh, was at the NRA and he made this claim. On immigration, he's going to induce a total ban on immigrants. No more immigrants unless they come from white European countries. He's going to ramp up fossil fuel production because there is no such thing as global warming. He says he's going to unleash America's energy dominance and bring down gas, natural gas, and, and diesel prices. He's going to come up with a better way to control our youth. He's going to bring back spanking in our schools, corporal punishment. He says America's troubled youth are out of control. They're out on the streets. They're going wild. Right, so he wants to overhaul federal standards with regard to beating children. He's going to send the Army and the National Guard into our cities to control the black people there. He wants to beef up stop and frisk, which Rudy Giuliani notoriously used to harass black and Hispanic people in New York City. So, you know, this is Trump's agenda. Is that the agenda you want? And by the way, it's not just Donald Trump. I think you can safely say that pretty much every Republican running for president right now, or running for anything, agrees with pretty much everything that I just read you. Bizarre. Absolutely bizarre. <laughs> Picking up your phone calls here, Mary Lou in San Jose. Hey, Mary Lou, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Hi. So a quick thing. Somebody earlier mentioned Kurt Vonnegut, mm -hmm. and it reminded me uh, science fiction. A while back, I watched Around the World in 80 Days thing, the PBS program, and it made me think of Jules Verne and how bright and brilliant he was. So I started looking through science fiction books that were available, and I just wanted to recommend a book. And I think somebody else has mentioned it once before. It's called The Ministry for the Future. By whom? By Kim Stanley Robinson. Oh, yeah. Okay. And, yeah. And he just really goes through the, number one, he describes what it's like to try to live in a heat wave of 135 degrees. Mm -hmm. And that, just that alone is really amazing to read. Mm -hmm. And the other part of this is he goes through some really good solutions for capturing carbon, for changing our economic structures, and so forth. He does a really, really good job. It's a pretty hefty book, but 
I'm recommending it. And the only other thing is thank you for keeping me sane. <laughs> okay, you're welcome. That's, I guess that's my job these days. It's a, keep myself right. sane first, right? Mary Lou, thank right. you. It's so nice to hear from you. I appreciate the call. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.